The first woman to serve as Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, says she'll step down from leadership duties in January, though she'll remain in Congress. This as Republicans take control of the House of Representatives. Pelosi's big move and the consequences coming up on this Thursday, November 17th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden tries to reposition the U.S. as a leader in climate reform this week at the COP27 climate conference. This gathering must be the moment to recommit our future and our shared capacity to write a better story for the world. We'll hear from the White House climate advisor on the next chapter in that story. And no latte for you. Workers at 100 Starbucks around the country are on strike. It's 4.01. The headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Nancy Pelosi, the first and only woman ever to serve as Speaker of the House, is retiring from her Democratic Party leadership role, but staying in Congress. The Republicans will regain control of the House starting January following wins in the midterm elections. On the floor of the House today, Pelosi called on colleagues to defend a fragile democracy, her remarks evoking memories of the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol last year. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Pelosi's departure from the leadership post now opens the door to a younger generation of party leaders. Nancy Pelosi received a standing ovation after delivering a heartfelt speech on the House floor. In her remarks, the speaker reflected on her historic tenure and then said it was time to step aside. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries has emerged as the frontrunner to succeed her. He has the support of another prominent House Democrat, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who also announced today that he plans to step aside. House Democrats will hold a leadership meeting later this month. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The tax fraud trial of former President Donald Trump's family business resumed today in New York. NPR's Ilya Merritt reports the star witness was questioned both by prosecutors and defense attorneys. Former CFO Alan Weisselberg has been a steady presence in the executive suite in Trump Tower since the mid-1980s. In August, he pleaded guilty to 15 felonies, mostly financial crimes. On cross-examination, he admitted he betrayed the Trump family for personal gain. His voice broke as he described his embarrassment. Earlier, under direct examination, Weisselberg said these tax dodges benefited not just him, but also the Trump business. He said that the company took steps to clean up its act in 2017 when Donald Trump became president. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. The Russian government has agreed to an extension of a Black Sea Agreement deal that would allow grain to continue flowing to countries facing some of the worst food shortages on the planet. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says it seems Russia felt the world would not have accepted it if Moscow had turned its back on the agreement. What we're seeing is a very telling split screen. As the world works to help the most vulnerable people, Russia targets them. As leaders worldwide reaffirm their commitment to the UN Charter and international rules that benefit all our people, President Putin continues to try to shred those same principles. Blinken speaking ahead of an APEC summit in Bangkok about Russia's ongoing missile attacks on Ukrainian civilians and their infrastructure as winter approaches. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark is being mentioned as a possible candidate for a higher leadership position among House Democrats when Republicans take control of the U.S. House. Longtime Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced today she will not seek to keep her position as leader of House Democrats. Assistant House Speaker Clark calls Pelosi a friend and a mentor. Salem Congressman Seth Moulton calls Pelosi a historic speaker and legendary Democrat. In 2016 and 2018, Moulton tried but failed to oust Pelosi as speaker to allow for younger leaders. Moulton tells WBUR he will not seek a leadership role among House Democrats next year. The widow of a Boston University professor who died at the JFK UMass Red Line station is suing the MBTA and the State Department of Transportation for wrongful death. David Jones fell to his death while climbing a decrepit and rusted staircase in September of last year. The lawsuit alleges the state allowed the staircase to fall into disrepair, making it a danger to the public. The suit accuses the state of not taking adequate measures to protect the public from accessing the stairs. The MBTA and Department of Transportation have not commented on the litigation. Boston Public Schools must address systemic issues with how it identifies certain children with disabilities. That's according to a new report that finds more black and Latino males, as well as English language learners, are referred to special education. That often means those students are learning in separate classrooms. WBR Simone Lee has more. The analysis was conducted by a group known as the Council of the Great City Schools. Its executive director, Ray Hart, says Boston has not modified its way of identifying special education students for decades. Nearly a third of those students are placed in entirely separate classrooms. And I can tell you that even in large urban school districts across the country, that 29% stands out significantly among your peers. Special education is just one area Boston's school district must reform per an agreement reached with state education officials to avert a takeover of the school system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Suvan Lee. 44 degrees now in the Boston area, a nice late afternoon. Our gusty winds from today should stick around overnight tonight. Temperatures falling to just below freezing tonight. Tomorrow, a little bit sunnier than today has been, but just about as chilly temperatures in the mid-40s. For the weekend, sunny skies on Saturday, still breezy, highs about 44. Then for Sunday, sunshine's back, but so are the gusty winds. We should be around 39 degrees. It's 4.07. WBUR supporters include a vast a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, the suspense is over on two things we've been watching for after this year's midterm elections. Republicans have won narrow control of the House. And across the aisle, the end of an era has come for Democratic leadership. My colleagues, I stand before you as Speaker of the House. Today on the House floor, Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she will step down as party leader after two decades. With great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. 
Pelosi became the first woman to serve as Speaker of the House and has been one of the most powerful lawmakers to ever hold that position. Susan Page is Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, and she has long covered Pelosi's career. She's here to talk about the announcement and what might come next. Welcome. Yes, hi. Great to be with you. So, Susan, you wrote about Pelosi's career in the book, Madam Speaker. Can you just remind us briefly, like like the 30-second version, what was Pelosi's path to Democratic leadership? Well, she was a political organizer in California and a fundraiser. She ran in a special election in 1987 and came to Washington thinking she'd stay for about 10 years. But she propelled, she was propelled really into the Democratic leadership and has for the past 20 years been in that role. So that is a really remarkable history and, and somebody who first made her name as the first woman in the job but then kept her name, made more history for what she managed to achieve in the job. Right. Homemaker to House Speaker, as she put it. Well, Pelosi, of course, has been a polarizing figure. She's been a frequent target of Republicans. She's had plenty of friction with members in her own caucus. But we're hearing people now say that she's going to be remembered as one of the most effective speakers in modern history. First, do you agree with that assessment? And what are the top moments in her career that stand out to you? You know, you think about it, in 2008, during the financial meltdown, she pushed through a bank bailout that economists say kept us from a from another depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, she helped brought Barack Obama, she was crucial in, in Barack Obama's success in passing the Affordable Care Act, that she says that's her biggest achievement. And then, of course, during the Trump era, she became the face of the Democratic opposition to the most disruptive president in our history. And cleared the way, okayed the path that led to two impeachments of him. Well, this announcement that she's stepping down as House Democratic leader, it it came just a few weeks after her husband, Paul Pelosi, was brutally attacked in their San Francisco home. How much do you think that particular incident played into her decision to step down now? Do you think it was critical? It's interesting. She sat down with a few reporters after she made her announcement, Mm -hmm. and she told us that the attack on her husband made her more open to the idea of staying in Congress, mm-hmm. even while stepping back from the leadership. She said she didn't want to give them the satisfaction of seeing her leave town. Oh, that's interesting. OK, so maybe it played some role, but she uh, some role in keeping her in Congress. That's that's right. It didn't. Uh, it's not the reason she stepped down. She had promised to do that four years ago, although there have been a lot of speculation lately about whether she'd deliver on that promise. Uh, But it actually made her more likely to continue to represent her California district here in Washington. Very interesting. Well, in her speech today, Pelosi talked about the next generation willing to shoulder the responsibility of leading House Democrats. What can you tell us about who is planning to run for party leadership now in the House? Well, it's increasingly likely that Hakeem Jeffries, the congressman from Brooklyn, will succeed Nancy Pelosi as the leader of House Democrats. He's been in the leadership. He'll be another groundbreaking figure in the job. As she was, he will be the first person of color to lead one of the major parties in either House of Congress. Right. And two other individuals, right, are emerging among the Democrats. That's right. Kathleen Clark from Massachusetts as number two. And Congressman Aguilar from California would be number three in the new House leadership. Big generational change. The three people they're replacing are all in their 80s. Right. Because there was some agitation among the ranks that leadership was aging and it was time for there to be younger blood in in the leadership post, right? Among the Democrats. Pelosi told us that her phone was blowing up with members of Congress, Democrats saying, you should stay and lead us. We need you. 
But the fact is, I think there is a sense with Democrats here that it is time to move to a next generation of leadership, really the right time for her to move on. So what do you think, Susan? What do you think Pelosi's legacy will mean for both the party and for her successor in the House? Well, she's, you know, she's demonstrated how effective you can be even when you're a pretty narrow majority. And just in the past two years, she's had a pretty narrow majority and managed to get some big legislation through. She's also demonstrated that women can be in the top positions in government. She's the most, for a long time until uh, Kamala Harris was elected, she was the highest ranking woman in American history. That is Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Susan. Hey, thank you. The Food and Drug Administration has taken a first step towards allowing, for the first time ever, a new kind of meat to be sold in the U.S. It is called cultivated meat, and it is grown, grown directly from animal cells without slaughtering animals. People gathering at the U.N. Climate Conference in Egypt this week are getting a taste of this new product, which is being touted as a climate-friendly alternative. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. When it comes to climate change solutions, there's a lot of focus on the food system. That's because about one-third of all greenhouse gas emissions come from food production, many directly from meat. I'm Joshua March, uh, co-founder and CEO here at Sci-Fi Foods. Sci-Fi Foods is one of more than 50 startups staking a future in cultivated meat. March is developing an alternative to the traditional burger because he says beef has a big environmental footprint. It's responsible for a huge amount uh, of methane emissions, which is one of the most potent greenhouse gases, deforestation of the rainforest. Trees are cut down to create pasture to graze cattle. Land is needed to grow grain to feed the animals. And climate scientists warn that it's nearly impossible to meet climate goals without changing agriculture. March says telling people to eat less meat won't work. Global demand for animal protein is on the rise, and burgers are one of Americans' favorite foods. But he thinks there may be a growing appetite for an alternative. If you go to most people and say, wouldn't it be amazing if we could produce real meat, but do it without the need to kill an animal and without the need to cut down the rainforest and all the other stuff that comes with it? And most people will say, like, yeah, that would be amazing. And that's what we're doing. That's what they aim to do. Cultivated meat is not yet approved by the Food and Drug Administration, but over the last few years, companies have forged ahead. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars for research and development. One of the first startups in the space, called Good Meat, is much further along. Here's Good Meat's Andrew Noyes. We're the only company in the world that has regulatory approval to sell anywhere in the world, and that is in Singapore. They made headlines a couple of years ago when they began to sell cultivated chicken in a restaurant in Singapore. And Good Meat is serving up its chicken at the climate conference this week in Egypt, making a case it could be good for the environment. One of the first questions people ask before trying it is exactly how do you grow meat? We took a tour of their production facility near San Francisco. Welcome to Good Meat's pilot plant building. We've been finishing up the construction and commissioning. Good Meats Peter Zerpak walks us into a space that looks like a brewery. It's filled with big, shiny stainless steel tanks. The one on the right is 3,500 liters. It stretches from floor to ceiling. 
This is where the process starts. They've extracted a bunch of cells from chickens. Now they need to feed these cells, a mix of proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, same things the cells would get if they were in an animal's body. You can also add some nutrients as they're slowly growing, just like all of us. If you need a snack in the middle of the day, sometimes the cells may need a snack as well. The feed is mixed into a liquid and piped into the tanks where the cells will grow and they're looked after closely. You're watching that they're just the right temperature, they don't have a fever, you're watching that they're the right pH. Then the cells start to proliferate and grow into meat. Good meat scientist Vitor Espirosanta says what's happening here is akin to making sourdough bread from a starter full of yeast. So when you think about yeast fermentation, you have a cell that essentially proliferates in a, in a culture media, and that by dividing, it's producing the product we, we want. He says the difference here, of course, is the cells are animal cells. The processes are the same. We feed them with nutrients and they will multiply until we tell them to stop. The meat grows inside the tanks on trays. After it comes out, it's molded into shapes such as nuggets or filet. After three to four weeks, they're ready for the grill. Good Meat's in-house chef Chris Jones prepared a grilled chicken dish in a clay pot with mushrooms. Just doing a really umami-style um, mushroom glaze and actually just leaving the chicken basically naked. He adds some asparagus, brown rice, and quinoa. Well, it definitely looks beautiful. And he serves it up. This is really delicious. Tastes like chicken. It is chicken. It's actually about 75% cultivated chicken. The other 25% is plant-based ingredients. This blended approach may be the fastest way to get products to market, given scaling up commercial production could be a challenge. Good Meats' Andrew Noyes says the goal is to sell its products in the U.S. We are working actively with the FDA and USDA on an efficient pathway to market so we can sell our chicken product to consumers here. And yesterday, another cultivated meat company cleared a key regulatory hurdle. The Food and Drug Administration gave Upside Foods a safety nod after reviewing more than 100 pages of documentation showing that their cultivated meat is safe to eat. It's an important first step towards selling their products in the U.S. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the Biden administration prepares for the end of pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Stocks dipped a bit today. The Dow lost a tiny fraction, about eight points, to close at 33,546. S&P gave up 0.31 percent to end the day at 39.47. The Nasdaq lost 0.35 percent to finish at 11,145. Boston software company PTC is buying a California firm for $1.5 billion. PTC creates design and machine management software. It's purchasing the company's ServiceMax, which develops software to help manufacturers track serial numbers and service histories of their products. For the past 10 years, PTC has been buying smaller rivals. Its 419 marketplace starts up at 630. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. Opening November 25th, tickets at bostonballet.org. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen to the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out to work. Philadelphia has flown into town to take on the Bruins at the Garden tonight. Game time is 7 o'clock. Boston's looking to keep intact its undefeated record at home. And the forecast, partly cloudy, plenty cold overnight. Tonight should be about 31 degrees. Tomorrow, much like today, highs in the mid-40s. More sunshine, though. And then for Saturday and Sunday, sunny skies, temperatures only in the upper 30s to low 40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Biden administration has just over one month to prepare for possible changes at the southern border, and those changes could be major. A federal judge this week threw out the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42, and that comes just as migrant apprehensions are already at record levels. I want to bring in two guests now to help us understand what this all means, both at the border and beyond. We've got Angela Kocheriga with member station KTEP in El Paso, Texas, and NPR's Joel Rose reporting from Washington. Hey to both of you. Hi, Elsa. So, Joel, I want to start with you. Can you just remind us what is Title 42 and how much have immigration authorities relied on it over the course of the pandemic? A lot. I mean, immigration authorities have used these pandemic border restrictions called Title 42 more than two million times to quickly expel migrants without giving them a chance to first seek asylum in the U.S. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. ruled this week that Title 42 is unlawful because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention should have considered less drastic alternatives to protect the country from COVID-19 and also ignored the possible harms of expelling these migrants to Mexico. But the judge agreed to stay that ruling for five weeks with great reluctance, he wrote in all caps, (laughs) to give the Biden administration more time to prepare for an orderly transition. Okay. Well, Angela, you've been in Juarez this week, just across the border from El Paso. What was the reaction there when they all found out this news? Well, Elsa, I was at a migrant camp located right on the banks of the Rio Grande, and everyone there was aware that Title 42 is ending soon. The news had traveled very fast, and they were cautiously optimistic and very relieved. Now, the only decision left for most was when to turn themselves into Border Patrol agents at a mobile processing center just across the river. So it's all been very orderly. And I talked with Juan Sanchez, who had been living at this camp for a month, and he was very ready to leave. My friends are telling me that we can cross, maybe we have a chance. I hope so. We are professionals. We are working people. So about a thousand people have been camped there for about a month. There are no portable bathrooms. And May Castillo, someone else I met there, she's a mother of three. She's been sleeping in a donated tent with her husband and her children. Yeah. 
She says the tents do not provide shelter from the tremendous cold and the temperatures have been dipping below freezing. So no one wants to be there longer than they have to. Border Patrol is telling people not to cross, that they'll be turned back because Title 42 has not ended yet. But the migrants say so far they're not seeing people from the camp being sent back. And that camp is emptying out as more and more people cross. I imagine so. Well, meanwhile, Joel, you've been following the reaction in Washington. What are lawmakers saying about this ruling so far? There's concern about even greater numbers of migrants trying to cross the border illegally if and, you know, when Title 42 ends. And we heard that today from senators on both sides of the aisle at a hearing with the Secretary of Homeland Security, including Republican James Lankford of Oklahoma and Democrat Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. A lot of people counting on these numbers coming down and they're not. They're going up with the end of Title 42 uh, coming in 35 days. We expect it's going to accelerate even higher. With the sudden announcement that Title 42 will be terminated in December, I'm extremely worried that DHS is not ready and that border communities and migrants will suffer the costs for this lack of preparation. You know, we heard these same concerns back in the spring when the Biden administration was preparing to end Title 42 voluntarily. In fact, Senators Sinema and Lankford introduced a bill back then that would have extended these border restrictions. Their bill didn't get very far in part because a federal judge in Louisiana blocked the Biden administration from ending Title 42 then. But we could potentially see that bill or something like it resurrected now during the lame duck session. Well, going back to El Paso, Angela, how ready do you think the city government there and and all the organizations out there that help migrants, how ready will they be, you think, for more influx? Yeah, well, they've been through this before. Over the summer, large groups of Venezuelans were crossing the border and arriving in El Paso. So the city says it can open what they call a welcome center to help the migrants find find shelter, temporary shelter, that is, and make mm-hmm. travel arrangements. And they're dedicating 60 city workers to help nonprofit organizations because they're struggling to find enough volunteers. All of this is very expensive, so they want the federal government to quickly provide funding $3 million to start, and the city is owed $7 million for the, the spike in migration this summer. There are no plans to resume that busing migrants to New York uh, program, but some nonprofit organizations may help arrange travel by bus or plane to other destinations. Okay, so calls for more federal funding. Joel, what is the Biden administration saying about those calls and about preparations right now? Well, they say they'll be ready. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas appeared before a Senate committee today and said DHS has a plan that includes surging more resources to the border and also more enforcement under the immigration laws that were in place before Title 42. Enhancing the consequences for uh, unlawful entry, especially with respect to individuals who seek to evade law enforcement, including removal, detention, and criminal prosecution when warranted. Again, these are a lot of the same things Mayorkas said back in the spring. Any increase in detention or deportation is not going to sit well with immigrant advocates and many Democrats. It's also possible the Biden administration could still try to appeal the judge's ruling on Title 42 up to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals or beyond, um, just because the White House doesn't have a lot of other great options here. That is NPR's Joel Rose and Angela Kocherga with member station KTEP. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. You're welcome. Economic gloom has settled over the United Kingdom today as that country's finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, unveiled his long-awaited autumn budget. He warned of a tough road ahead. Willem Marks reports from London. This was never going to be an easy sell for Jeremy Hunt. The UK is currently in the grips of a fiscal storm exacerbated by the decisions of his predecessor, Kwasi Kwarteng, and the then Prime Minister, Liz Truss. 
A few weeks ago, Kwarteng announced the largest tax-cutting plans for 50 years. But they were not sufficiently costed, and after an awful reaction from the financial markets, Hunt has entirely reversed course. His proposals to Parliament today have turned the ruling Conservative Party's economic policy on its head and will leave the country with the highest tax burden since the Second World War. They include $65 billion in tax increases and spending cuts over the next five years, with severe long-term implications for Britain's schools, health system and elderly care. Mr Hunt acknowledged the country was in recession and that his new package would be a bitter pill for many to swallow. We are not alone in facing these problems, but today we respond to an international crisis with British values. We are honest about the challenges and we are fair in our solutions. While the government's largely blamed the economic headwinds on the pandemic and war in Ukraine, political opponents pointed out that the UK's problems are considerably worse than many of its international peers. Rachel Reeves, the finance minister from the main opposition Labour Party, said that the British people would be left with the consequences of conservative chaos. All the country got today was an invoice for the economic carnage that this government has created. Never again can the Conservatives be seen as the party of economic competence. New independent official forecasts suggest Britain's economy will shrink next year more than any other large European country. And amid spiralling double-digit inflation, UK living standards over the next two years will now fall the fastest in modern history. For NPR News, I'm Bill and Marks in London. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the White House climate advisor on how the U.S. will address global climate change. The sun's setting on a nice but kind of blustery day today. Should be cold tonight down in the low 30s. Sunny and still chilly tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-40s, which is where they are right now. 44 degrees at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And LabShares Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities, labshares.com. Barbara Streisand had never been in a nightclub before she sang in one. It was the first time I felt the warmth of a spotlight. Now those performances from 1962 have been turned into an album, Live at the Bonsoir. An icon looks back at how it all began. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is stepping down from her leadership position. She'll remain in Congress. She has served as the top House Democrat for 20 years. NPR's Claudia Grisales says it's not yet known who will succeed Pelosi, but the current chair of the Democratic caucus is a contender. This is going to be a very big decision for Democrats to decide who will follow in her shoes. Now, one name that is being passed around quite a bit is New York Democratic Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. He He's heavily favored to succeed her as leader. He is 
uh, also been in leadership already. NPR's Claudia Grisales reporting. A court in the Netherlands has convicted two Russians and a Ukrainian separatist in connection with the downing of a Malaysian passenger plane over Ukraine in 2014. Nearly 300 people were killed. NPR's Charles Maines reports the men were sentenced in absentia to life in prison. Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was on its way from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur when it was shot down with what the court said was a Russian-made Buk missile provided by the Kremlin to Moscow-backed separatists. At the time, the fighters had launched an uprising in East Ukraine. The judges found the men guilty in absentia. None took part in the trial and are unlikely to face sentencing. A fourth man was acquitted. The Kremlin has always denied any role, even as it's promoted multiple conspiracies about the incident and doubled down in its support for the proxy war in East Ukraine. With Russia and Ukraine's armies now engaged in battles near the very fields where MH17 was shot down, many of the families of the victims say their tragedy serves as a sad harbinger of the violence in Ukraine to come. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. WNBA star Brittany Griner has been moved to a Russian penal colony more than 200 miles east of Moscow. She's been the subject of high-level conversations between the U.S. and Russia about a possible prisoner swap. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down about seven points today. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Outgoing U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is being praised by members of the all-Democratic Massachusetts congressional delegation. And that includes one of the Democrats who tried to oust her as Speaker twice. Congressman Seth Moulton says Pelosi served remarkably and passed important legislation. He calls her a truly historic leader. To get there, she smashed through enormous glass ceilings, some of the toughest in America. And that's an example that she's set for women literally all over the globe, Uh, an example that I'll be proud to share with my daughters as they grow up. Moulton says Pelosi is making good on her agreement with Democrats who opposed her several years ago to step down to make room for a new generation of leaders. Moulton says he will not seek a leadership position himself. Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern calls Pelosi a champion for children and an unsurpassed voice for human rights. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says Pelosi fights hard for workers and is a mentor to many. Some MBTA riders have been looking forward to the opening of a new Green Line station in Somerville and Medford later on this month, but they'll have to wait a little bit longer. WBR's Simone Rios reports the Green Line extension has been delayed yet again. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says the new stations are now set to open December 12th. It's the latest in a string of delays, but now Poftech says the additional work is done and they're planning for the opening event. There's a uh, universe of uh, enthusiasts for this type of thing, so I look forward to seeing you all at uh, approximately 4.45 a.m. for the grand opening. The expansion will add five new stations to the northern end of the Green Line, extending all the way to Tufts University in Medford. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. And Tufts University today named a new leader. Sunil Kumar will succeed retiring President Anthony Monaco next summer. Kumar is the provost and senior vice president of academic affairs at Johns Hopkins University. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. 
Game time, 7 o'clock tonight at the Garden as the Red Hot Bruins host the Philadelphia Flyers. Got some nice weather ahead if you don't mind keeping your hat on. Tonight, strong winds and cold ones down around 31 degrees. Tomorrow and Saturday, mostly sunny, only in the mid-40s. Sunday, sunny, pretty windy, colder, about 39 degrees tops. 44 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. What is the U.S. role in addressing climate change? At this year's U.N. climate conference, known as COP27, President Biden attempted to reclaim a leadership role, and he apologized for his predecessor's pullout from the Paris Agreement. This gathering must be the moment to recommit our future and our shared capacity to write a better story for the world. Let's build on our global climate progress, raising both our ambitions and the speed of our efforts. But with the conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt now wrapping up, the question of U.S. responsibility was, still is, at issue. The countries most impacted by things like extreme heat, flooding, sea level rise, they want rich countries like the U.S. to commit to pay for damages. Well, for more on that, we turn to National Climate Advisor to President Biden, Ali Zaidi. Uh, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with this idea of richer countries, which of course have contributed the most to climate change, and compensating developing countries for losses and damages they have incurred. The U.S. has said this is a great idea, we support this, but the U.S. has not come out and backed the creation of an actual pot of money to do that. Why not? You know, from day one of this administration, when the president signed us back into the Paris Agreement, he came in with a very clear conviction that major economies must drive major emissions reductions. That's exactly the policy he's pursued here domestically. Um, we're now on a path to get 50 to 52% emissions reductions by 2030. Now, at the same time, we've got to recognize that we've unleashed some of the impacts of a changing climate. And the way we tackle that is got to be together. Um, we've got to be in partnership and solidarity uh, with folks all around the world. And that's why the president has been very clear. Well, and I hear you using the words partnership and solidarity. And I'm thinking if I were from a country like, say, Pakistan, that is drowning through no fault of their own, they say the U.S. keeps talking, keeps throwing these big numbers out there. But is that just kind of kicking the can down the road? What would you say to that? Yeah, as someone who was actually born in Karachi, Pakistan, I totally hear what you're saying. And one of the things that I think um, animates the entirety of the president's climate agenda is a focus on delivering results. Um, that's why he's launched the PREPARE uh, initiative, which is working to help half a billion people in developing countries respond to climate. He's deposited uh, money, the first installment into an adaptation fund um, that's designed to do just this sort of work, uh, help 
broaden But he's not, forgive me for jumping in, but, but again, just back to this question of if the U.S. thinks it's a great idea to set up a fund for losses and damages, why won't the U.S. just come out and say that and put its money where its mouth is? I think the United States has been clear that it's important for us to be a partner in supporting countries around the world tackle the impacts of climate that have already been unleashed, that resources need to be mobilized to that end. That's why we have invested in things like the Adaptation Fund um, and why our Development Finance Corporation deployed $2.3 billion on climate for developing countries in just the last year. So it's a commitment. It is a recognition of the challenge. And we're fully leaned into bringing that to bear. Can you put a number on how much money the U.S. is willing to offer for losses and damages? The president has been clear about the amount of capital we need to mobilize on climate finance broadly, $11 billion by 2024 on an annual basis. And within that, he is focused on including $3 billion specifically on adaptation. Just one more on the question of loss and damage finance, because I do want to note that the U.S. allowed that to be added to the meetings agenda for the first time, but also demanded a footnote excluding the ideas of liability for historic emitters, such as the U.S., or compensation for countries affected by that pollution. To those who look at that, to what actually has just unfolded in Sharm el-Sheikh and say, I don't know. I wonder how earnest the U.S. commitment is to loss and damage compensation. What would you say? I think the United States recognizes that we are in the decisive decade for climate action. Um, That's something that's stipulated by the science. It's being witnessed in our communities, not here, but all around the world. And the president's response has been strong. It's been unambiguous. And he's delivering results as a major emitter and a major economy. We are on track now to drive down our emissions 50 to 52 percent by 2030. The U.S. is back at the table, uh, and I think louder than words are the actions that we're taking, and the president is driving us forward on bold, ambitious climate action. What, what about India? What about China? Both of them major greenhouse gas emitters. Their leaders both skipped the conference. What's their responsibility here? I think we're seeing the president galvanize action uh, across the world, Um, most recently with a global MOU that we just uh, signed into on heavy duty trucks moving to zero emissions. Um, We're excited about the progress uh, that we're making and it didn't happen by accident. It happened because the president of the United States decided not only we signed back into the Paris Agreement, America is going to help us lead. Big picture, you're just back from Sharm el-Sheikh. You were there uh, at the conference with the president. It's your job as people are gathering to be optimistic and search for solutions here. Um, But you will be aware of some of the very bleak headlines coming out of the conference. Uh, The lead of my NPR colleague, Nate Roth's story today from Sharm el-Sheikh reads, and I quote, global climate talks in Egypt are entering their final stretch. And so far, delegates have made little progress on the biggest climate questions facing humanity. Ali Zaidi, is he right? Here's the way I look at it. Um, I remember flying to Paris for the climate negotiations in 2015. Uh, And at that time, the world was looking at temperature rise five, six degrees, maybe more. Uh, I remember walking through the gates of the White House when President Biden took office and the world was looking at a temperature rise of three degrees, maybe more. Um, Now we're looking at something below two degrees. 
I think that's a that's a really uh, hopeful story. I know folks like to write climate change as a story of gloom and doom. I think it's a story of hope and opportunity. And I think Joe Biden sees that and is tapping into that power and that potential in accelerating us forward. And that is National Climate Advisor to President Biden, Ali Zaidi, just back from the conference in Sharm el-Sheikh. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. For many in the Democratic Party, the state of Georgia has come to symbolize the future. But Stacey Abrams has now lost another run for governor. With a Senate runoff still to come, what's next for her and for Georgia Democrats? That story is on tomorrow's program. If you're not by your radio, try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. If you ventured out to a Starbucks today, it's possible that on your way to a chestnut praline latte, you might have come across a picket line. Members of Starbucks Workers United organized the group's largest single-day strike, and they timed it so it would fall on what's known as Red Cup Day, one of the busiest days of the year for the coffee giant. NPR's Vanessa Romo has more. Hardcore Starbucks fans have been waiting for Red Cup Day, the day of the year when the company hands out limited edition holiday plastic drink containers, cued by this music. In some places, customers line up at the crack of dawn to get their hands on a collectible cup, making it one of the most profitable days on the calendar for Starbucks. Baristas, like Josie Serrano, are less enthused. It's always a very, very insane day. It just seems like every year we never have the staffing available for it. It feels like we're worked to the bone. Serrano has worked at Starbucks for about four and a half years at a store in Long Beach, California, one of the 264 stores that have voted to unionize over the last year. And they're on strike today. They say the understaffing issue is just one of the reasons that Starbucks Workers United decided to launch the so-called Red Cup Rebellion, a national strike with more than 100 stores staging their own picket lines. More broadly, though, Serrano says the walkout is intended to get Starbucks to bargain with workers in good faith as the two sides try to hammer out new contracts. It's been a really frustrating process. Because Starbucks has been doing everything it can to delay us getting our contracts. According to the union, the company has retaliated against union leaders, and Starbucks lawyers have walked out on bargaining sessions or made last-minute rescheduling requests that make it challenging for members to participate. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's Starbucks A.J. Jones, executive vice president of communications. He says, actually, the company has probably been overly aggressive in trying to schedule bargaining sessions. The problem with recent talk breakdowns, he says, is that union leaders at the table want to record or broadcast negotiation talks, a legal no-no. Under the National Labor Relations Act, you are not allowed to record bargaining sessions. And that actually is a, is a clear violation of the act because of what's being discussed. 
On the picket line, union members are hoping to win over customers who might not be thrilled with the strike if it interferes with their chance to get a precious cup. So they're offering an even more exclusive commemorative item, a union-designed red cup with the Starbucks Workers United logo on the front. Serrano says this is a new kind of labor movement. No contract. No coffee. I wanted some coffee, but guess what? We ain't having no coffee this morning. Thanks, everybody. I feel like this movement has just been very fun. It's been very positive. And we just really want to be able to share that with our supporters, too, you know? Like, this is a party. As of now, there are about 60 new bargaining sessions scheduled with stores across the country. Vanessa Romo, NPR News. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, a journey below the Mason-Dixon line to understand the soul of a nation. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org, and Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. Tonight at the Boston Garden, it's the Bruins against the Philadelphia Flyers at 7 o'clock. This is the middle game of a three-game homestand for the Bruins. Tonight, during warm-ups, the Bees will wear special edition military jerseys as part of their military appreciation night. The Boston Bruins Foundation will auction off the jerseys after warm-ups finish. Speaking of warming up, it won't. It should be down around freezing overnight tonight, then tomorrow turning up much like today. Temperatures in the mid-40s, but more sunshine tomorrow. Same for Saturday, sunny skies topping out at about 44 degrees. Sunshine on Sunday, but only in the upper 30s. WBUR supporters include Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. There's all the COVID testing to get into China and quarantines as well, and then... There are the special hoops that reporters have to jump through. There's a U.S.-China trade war, so we can only get three-month visas for journalists. I'm Kai Rizdal, the extra special song and dance that is entering China. That's next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Last night, Imani Perry accepted the National Book Award in nonfiction for her book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. I write for my people. I write because we children of the lash-scarred, rope-choked, bullet-ridden, desecrated are still here standing. I write for the field holler, the shout, the growl, the singer, the signer, and the signified. I write for the sinned against and the sanctifying. I write for the ones who clean the toilets and till the soil and walk the picket lines. For the hungry, the caged, the disregarded, the holding on, I write for you. 
At the core of Perry's book is a consideration of what the South represents for the many black Americans who call it home, what it means to America as a whole, and what its violent history can teach us today. I spoke with Imani Perry when her book first came out back in January. Here she is reading an excerpt from the introduction. My son Issa has warned me about the danger of making things look too beautiful. To be beautiful, it must be truthful, and the truth is often ugly. But it's funny, too, and strange, also morbid. This is a collection, but it is also an excision, a pruning like we might do to a plant in order to extend its life. Most of all, please remember, while this book is not a history, it is a true story. Hmm. Not a history, but a true story. Say more. What do you mean? You know, the, the discipline of history is based upon argument this book is much more um, an effort to have people dwell in place and space and time and reconsider um, their relationships to this place. So, um, and, and all of it, I think, is as truthful as I can be about it, which means that I had to get rid of some of my romantic um, ideas of of the place I call home and really look at it in a stark way, but also still uh, loving. Talk about what that's meant for you when you say you had to let go of some of the romantic ideas you had about this place that you clearly still love and call home. The reality of being born in Birmingham seven years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, nine years after the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, right? I'm born into a place that has been transformed from what was known as the most segregated, most violent city in the nation that has been transformed into a place of Black possibility. So I, for me, I carry that everywhere I went as this incredible pride, right? And it was a motivator. But it's also the case that people in my home are still suffering. It's also the case that it is still a place of profound inequality. Um, and so to get over the romanticism was for me to both hold on to what I think of as these sort of incredibly noble parts of um, of Southern tradition and also grapple with the fact that, you know, it is it remains the poorest region. It remains a region where many, many people are disenfranchised, it remains a region where people are exploited. And so how to hold on to wanting to celebrate it wanting to defend it against what I think are often sort of terrible stereotypes and diminishment and also tell the truth about um, its painful past and present. Yeah. So, you know, your book is about looking at the South to try to understand the soul of America. Um, mm -hmm. You write that if we're trying to understand the soul of the South, we need to look to the Black Belt. And I want you yes. to describe what it is, where it is, what sets it apart. That's the place where King Cotton made the United States uh, one of the most wealthy nations in the world. And they were I, I, one of the people I turned to to think about the Black Belt and what it yielded is Richard Wright, um, who talked in, in, in particular both his books, Black Boy and 12 Million Black Voices, in part because I'm trying to understand something that I don't know inherently. I don't come from black belt folks, right? Mm. And so I turned to Wright and the way that he describes growing up in 
the black belt in this place with so much incredible beauty. The landscape is gorgeous and abundance and being hungry, right? And that kind of juxtaposition of deep hunger and incredible abundance um, is like, you know, at some level, that's the substance of what we might call the original sin of the nation, right? Deprivation alongside abundance. Um, To really get what it was like in recent history for people to essentially live in a plantation economy, right? And confront the violence of that, but also what it meant that that's the font of, of American music too. Incredible creativity emerges, imagination, um, and, and also cruelty. You're arguing that the South is, is the heart is the beginning of this country. I'm guessing we might have some Midwesterners who would, <laughs> yes. who would have something to say about that. So make the case. There's something about the way that we describe the South in the nation in general as somehow backwards, other, different, that is actually a denial of the core of what the country is. And that self-denial allows for a story that doesn't get to the essential tension, right, between freedom and subjugation, right, democracy and domination, those kinds of things. And so you know, I, I almost find myself thinking we're at an era where the myths that nations tell about themselves, and all nations do this, are too naive now. You know, we're facing climate disaster. We're facing this pandemic, and there will likely be more. We're, we're facing um, growing inequality. We have to tell the story true as best we can. And in order to tell the story true... You know, we can't deny parts of who we are, particularly when those parts are the ones that set the stage for what the nation would become. So, you know, for me, that is part of why we have to look to the South to understand the country. That was Imani Perry. She won the National Book Award last night for her book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. Elon Musk has now laid off half of Twitter's staff and thousands of contractors, including some who did critical work to curb harmful content on the platform. Hear what some of those workers are saying about the consequences tomorrow on NPR's Morning Edition. Listen on the air or try asking your smart speaker to play your local member station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Universal Pictures presenting She Said, starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as the New York Times journalists whose investigation helped ignite a movement based on actual events. Only in theaters tomorrow. Rated R. And from Mathnasium, committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores, with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. And from Workday, 
committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR, 43 degrees in the Boston area, freezing out there overnight tonight, down around 31 degrees, still on the windy side, too. Tomorrow, sunny skies, a chilly breeze once again, temperatures in the mid-40s. Then for Saturday and Sunday, sunny skies again in the mid-40s on Saturday, but only hitting 39 on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The end of an era in Congress. Nancy Pelosi, the first woman to hold the speaker's gavel and be at the vanguard of Democrats for two decades, says she will not seek a leadership role in the next Congress. The number two Democrat, Steny Hoyer, is also stepping down. A new generation of leaders coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. Cryptocurrency trading company FTX spent big money on advertising in this year's Super Bowl. Now the company is collapsing, freezing the accounts of more than a million investors. It feels like someone's stealing your money. Yeah, it feels like theft. Coming up, the rise and fall of FTX. And Taylor Swift fans are outraged after tickets for her upcoming tour caused Ticketmaster to crash. Now lawmakers are demanding answers about the company's operations. It's 5.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is stepping down from Democratic Party leadership after more than 20 years at the top. She made the announcement a day after Republicans officially secured the majority for the next Congress. More from NPR's Susan Davis. In a speech on the House floor, Pelosi said it was time to pass the torch. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Pelosi has served as the top Democrat in Congress for two decades, both as minority leader and speaker. She broke the marble ceiling and became the first woman to lead the House after the 2006 election. The party lost and then regained the majority in 2018, returning her to the speakership. Pelosi said she will continue to serve in the House to represent her San Francisco-based district. New York Democratic Congressman Hakeem Jeffries is heavily favored to succeed her as leader. Democrats will hold leadership elections shortly after Thanksgiving. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. More countries are signing on to a pledge to cut a potent greenhouse gas. NPR's Nathan Rott reports in the International Climate Conference in Egypt. The Global Methane Pledge was launched at last year's climate conference, and its aim to cut methane emissions and flaring of the natural gas is seen as crucial to limiting warming. While methane has a shorter life once it's released in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide, it is a far more potent greenhouse gas. The United States and the European Union, which launched the pledge, announced Thursday that more than 50 new countries have signed on, bringing the total promising to reduce methane to more than 150. 
key polluters like India, China, and Russia have not joined the pact. But China did say it is creating its own plan to reduce methane now. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Sharm el-Sheikh. A biotech company is hauling a landmark experiment that was testing a gene editing technique to restore vision to people blinded by a rare genetic disease. NPR's Rob Stein has the story. The experiment was the first attempt to use the gene editing technique known as CRISPR to treat patients by editing genes while they're still inside the body. And the Cambridge, Massachusetts company sponsoring the research, Editas, says the experiment appears to have helped restore vision to three out of 14 patients. But the company says only about 300 patients in the U.S. match the genetic profile of those most likely to benefit. So the company is halting further testing to decide whether there's any way to make the approach commercially viable. Rob Stein, NPR News. Good news for to be home buyers. Mortgage buyer Freddie Mac says the average rate on a 30-year mortgage fell to 6.61%. That's down from more than 7% last week. On Wall Street, the Dow is down seven points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Now that U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced she will not seek a leadership post in the new Congress, Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark is being mentioned as a possible candidate for a higher leadership role among House Democrats. The Revere representative is the fourth highest ranking member of House leadership and is considered among the more powerful among the younger House Democrats. Today, Clark tweeted out a picture of herself and Pelosi embracing and included the words, thank you. As Republicans prepare to take control of the U.S. House with a narrow majority, they are heralding an end to one-party rule in Washington. But one thing will remain the same come January. There won't be a single GOP representative of any of the, from any of the six New England states. WBR's Anthony Brooks has more. Republicans hoped to be competitive in several House races across New England, but lost them all. The region's final congressional race was just decided in Maine, where Democrat Jared Golden defeated Republican Bruce Poliquin. Neil Levesque, executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College, says New England is traditionally tough terrain for Republicans, and with some candidates embracing former President Donald Trump, it made it even tougher. We've seen an evolution in New England where Republicans really in federal office are an endangered species. Senator Susan Collins of Maine remains the only New England Republican in Congress, while Democrats hold the region's 32 other House and Senate seats. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The Medford extension of the Green Line will open in less than a month. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak announced today trains will start running along the new branch beginning December 12th. The T has repeatedly pushed back deadlines for the project. Poftak says technical issues took longer than expected to work out. We wanted to make sure that we did it safely and we did it properly, so we're taking a few extra days. The Medford branch will make several stops in Somerville and terminate near the campus of Tufts University. In the forecast, should be windy and cold overnight tonight, dipping to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy, windy again in the mid-40s again. And then wind should stick around for the weekend, especially Sunday. Should be sunny both days, even if it only reaches the mid-40s. 43 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. 
Gracias. There's a spot on the African continent that's technically part of Europe. It's an enclave city called Melilla, owned by Spain, surrounded by Morocco and the Mediterranean Sea. People have died trying to cross this land border into the European Union. We are going in the other direction. And with that, we've officially left Spain. Salam alaikum. Yes. The border is surrounded by layers of tall fences and armed guards. But if you have the right papers... Oh my gosh. Morocco is your second country. Thank you so much. Border officers give you a warm welcome, as long as you don't ask the wrong questions. This is part of a journey we're taking through three countries, connecting the dots across three major stories. In Senegal, climate change is forcing people from their homes. In Morocco, migrants from all over Africa try to reach Europe. And in Spain, these trends are giving a boost to far-right political parties. Climate change, migration, xenophobic politics. It's a story playing out in different ways all over the world. Walking through the Moroccan city of Nador in the morning, my first impressions are of the smells. Big baskets of spices are set out in front of shops. People are drinking mint tea, and there's fresh-baked breads coming out of the bakeries that smell like sesame seeds and yeast. Nador used to be a place where many migrants from sub-Saharan Africa spent time waiting for their chance to cross into Melilla. These days, it's hard to find any black people in town. We're arriving at the church in Nador. This is one of the few places migrants can come for food and shelter. Right outside of the church, there are police guards standing, standing guard. We asked to talk with some of the people running the church's programs, but nobody who works or volunteers there wants to do an interview. Someone tells us we can't record at all without permission, so we put away our equipment. It's understandable. Anyone helping migrants in Nador is in a precarious situation. But a woman from Mali with a -a two-and-a-half-year-old girl on her back doesn't mind chatting. She's been trying to get to Europe, and it's wearing on her. The Islamic call to prayer rings out behind her as she says, the police hassle us all the time. There's lots of racism, lots of violence. We're not doing well. We're just asking for charity to eat. Before she leaves, she turns back and tells us one more thing. Tell them to open the border so we can go in, she says. Please, just tell them to open the border. She picks up her two plastic bags full of food and medicine from the church and walks away with her daughter on her back. The situation with migrants trying to cross into Melilla gives Morocco a lot of leverage. The European Union wants to stop African people from showing up in Europe, even as these countries welcome millions of Ukrainian refugees with open arms. Morocco has the power to crack down on migration or turn a blind eye and let people through. So whatever Morocco wants from Europe, whether that's money or control over the disputed territory of Western Sahara, People like the Malian woman become convenient pawns that Morocco can use in this geopolitical chess game. Right now, the European Union is urging Moroccan authorities to take a hard line against migrants.
Omar Naji's office in the Moroccan Association of Human Rights is on the fourth floor of a building with no elevator. <laughs> we asked if he wanted to do this interview over tea in a cafe. It would give us a more interesting setting than a stark office. You know, sound of a crowd, glasses clinking. But he said, no, better to talk privately. Okay. When Omar moved to Nador in the 1990s, he says he barely noticed the border here. Buses went back and forth. You didn't need a passport. Now the border is militarized. Migrants sometimes spend months camping in the surrounding hills, planning their next move. Here in Nador, they aren't even allowed to rent a room, he says. Authorities have forbidden it. If someone rents a room to a sub-Saharan migrant, they can be prosecuted for assisting. You could be asked for your papers in the street, stopped for the color of your skin. These pressures exploded in June of this year. All over the world news reports told the story of more than 1,500 migrants rushing the border fence. This video shows dozens of men on the ground, their bodies piled up on top of each other at the foot of the fence separating Morocco from Spain. The Moroccan police used tear gas and rubber bullets to repel the group. Dozens were killed in the chaos that ensued, and many more are still unaccounted for. Now they're killing people, Omar says. Migration policy has become criminal. Throughout our interview, the phone in his pocket has been buzzing and ringing with messages and calls. Finally, he pauses our conversation to answer the phone and steps into the hallway. And when he comes back... Did you understand that? That's Ricky Shryock, our photographer, who was also interpreting during our interview. You did understand what he said, though, right? The police will follow you. If you the police are following us. He just got a call. Mm-hmm. Oh, right now the police are following us. Suddenly, it's clear why Omar didn't want to talk to us over tea in a cafe. You never know who might be at the table next to you. To be fair, we're not subtle. You have a camera, I have a notebook, you're the only black person in the city. We're not subtle. Everyone knows It's not unusual for police to follow and question journalists working in Morocco. It's an authoritarian country and the government doesn't want people to report on migration control. We decide to keep going. There are no longer thousands of people living in the hills around Nador. Moroccan authorities have made sure of that. But there are some, so we set out to try to find them, knowing that police would likely turn us back before we reach the camp. We're driving past barren hills, olive groves. It's very, very brown and dusty. There are very few buildings or people at all. Okay, we're turning off the main road onto a bumpy dirt track that goes up into a village. Where two schoolgirls with backpacks are walking up the road. An old man runs a general store here. We're not using his name for reasons that will soon become apparent. He says the migrants come down out of the hills and visit his store from time to time, and he tries to help them. Everyone in the village does. They sometimes come here without shoes because they've been chased. I give them my shoes. They have ripped or burned clothing. Sometimes they have injuries. I try to give them minor first aid. What do the authorities do when they see you help? 
Problema para mí. Problema para mí siempre. It's always a problem for me. But they can't really do anything to you. They'll ask for documents, take me to the police headquarters and tell me night, harass me. And so why do you continue to offer help, even when you know police will harass you for it? <laughs> well, I can't stay and do nothing. I can't not help. If you see someone who needs help, can even walk, have no shoes, you have to do it. The day before yesterday, people came. There were only four or six people. But the authorities burnt everything they had. I saw the smoke from that hill. You have this philosophy that if you see someone in need, you have to help. And so when you see smoke coming up from the hill next door, where authorities have burned the few possessions people have, some of which you gave them, how does that make you feel? <laughs> you can't put that feeling into words. You can't describe it. I close my eyes and I go inside. Because as the saying goes, the heart can't feel what the eyes don't see. Could you get in trouble for talking with us? Could the authorities come and harass you for having this conversation now? Who knows what's in their head? By law, they can't do anything to us for talking the truth. They can't do anything to me. People are free to speak. As if on cue, a battered old car rolls up and a man with a baseball cap gets out. He asks if we have authorization. The police officer pulled up, said we don't have a right to be here, took a photo of the license plate and made a phone call. So he tells us to wait until the supervisor arrives. Yeah. You know what, just in case, just in case, I'm going to remove the sound card and put it in deep in my bag right now. So this is the last of the recording, folks. After about 20 minutes, a much nicer SUV rolls up and a man in a suit steps out. He introduces himself as the authority in the area. He doesn't give his name. In English, he asks for our documents and photographs our passports. He tells me I am forbidden from publishing any photos or videos, and I truthfully reply that I have no photos or videos. He doesn't mention audio. When he asks what we're doing, we say we're trying to find out whether there are people living in the hills. The authority in the suit smiles, shakes his head, and says in English, quote, We work on this to not have any black people here. Tomorrow, our journey north continues, and we get the view from inside the enclave, talking to immigration officials and some of the lucky people who made it over the fence. Immigration is like water. If you block it in one place, the water is going to flow out somewhere else. That's just the way it is. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, as all things considered, police are giving few details and contradictory information about the apparent murders of four University of Idaho students last weekend. Also ahead, Taylor Swift fans versus Ticketmaster.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. Stocks dipped a bit today. The Dow lost a tiny fraction, about 8 points, to close at 33,546. S&P gave up 0.31% to end the day at 39.47. The Nasdaq lost 0.35% to finish at 11,145. The average price of gasoline in the state has begun to drop. The AAA Northeast survey shows statewide average at $3.84 a gallon. That is down three cents from a week ago. Marketplace has business news coming up in just over an hour. It's now 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Coming to WBUR City Space Monday, November 21st, a conversation on climate action and activism with author and environmentalist Bill McKibben. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Should be windy and cold overnight tonight, dipping to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mainly sunny, windy again. Highs in the mid-40s. 43 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Japaigo committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Jipaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Police in the northern Idaho college town of Moscow still don't have a suspect in the apparent murders of four University of Idaho students on Sunday. The local police chief, James Fry, broke more than three days of silence and finally spoke to reporters last night. There's still a a person out there who committed four horrible, horrible crimes. There there is a, a threat out there still, possibly. And Piers Kirk Sigler is covering this story from Boise. Hey there, Kirk. Hey, Mary Louise. So we just heard the police chief there talking and ending saying, possibly. I gather there's contradictory information on whether there is or is not a wider threat to the community. What do we actually know? Well, we don't know very much, and apparently the police are in a similar situation, Mary Louise. Uh, you mentioned there Chief Fry saying he can't rule out that wider threat. Now, this contradicts in part uh, official statements and press releases we were getting earlier in this week saying that police thought it was a targeted attack. Uh, they still do, by the way, but also stressing that there was no wider threat to the community. But, you know, there's a suspect at large here. Um, so here's what we do know. Police responded to this house, which which is just across uh, the street, basically, from campus, Mm -hmm. uh, close to noon on Sunday after they got a call of an unconscious person. Well, they found four uh, students dead, four people dead. Uh, Police are now saying they have not found the murder weapon, but they believe it was some sort of sharp-edged object. Uh, They later said a knife. Uh, So this was a brutal stabbing. 
and even a little bit more puzzling information we've learned since that there were two roommates in the house apparently at the time of this attack, but a big unknown is why 911 wasn't called earlier. In fact, the police didn't get the call until almost noon on Sunday to respond. And as you say, last night, police talking publicly for the first time, they have not said anything since then. And so you've got a lot of rumors spreading and a lot of uh, anxious students, as you can imagine. Well, I was going to ask how the students are doing because this is all unfolding. University of Idaho, it's it's a small Mm -hmm. school in a small town. It's different even than the much larger Washington State University, as you know, which is just a few miles across from the state line. Uh, Mary Louise students are, as you can imagine, scared. They're frustrated, especially over the police's lack of transparency, at least how they see it so far. I spoke with Abigail Spencer. She's a junior studying journalism and political science at U of I, as it's called. And here's what she had to say. Students are definitely on edge and afraid. I think a lot of people are just wanting more answers. And with the lack of answers, it makes everybody a little jumpy and maybe a tad paranoid. Mary Louise, she did say that uh, there's a lot of beefed up security on campus right now. The university hired a private security firm uh, who's working in conjunction with uh, state police from Idaho that are now on hand. And most students have left for the Thanksgiving holiday early if they can. Uh, Abigail Spencer told me that campus feels very deserted right now. What can you tell us about the four victims? Well, the four dead were all in their early 20s, three young women and one man, uh, Ethan Chapman from Washington State. He was actually a triplet. All of his uh, siblings attended the University of Idaho. Two more students from Idaho and Zaina Kernodal of Arizona. Uh, As you can imagine, the families who are saying anything to the news media are are saying they're devastated. They want justice. And the mayor told me uh, in an interview that these were socially active and very popular students. So it's a very sad story unfolding. NPR's Kirk Sigler following that sad story from Boise. Thanks, Kirk. You're welcome. Okay, so we all know that Taylor Swift is a master at soundtracking heartbreak, but now heartbreak is something Swifties all around the world know all too well. That's right. The demand for pre-sale tickets for Swift's upcoming tour caused the ticketing service Ticketmaster to crash, which caused fans to flood TikTok with complaints about the whole fiasco. The funniest thing is Ticketmaster gaslighting us being like, we had no clue this many people would be buying tickets. Because Ticketmaster had all these technical issues. It kept crashing, kicking people out of line. This the pre-sale cluster was partially by design. If you wanted to make sure that- <laughs> And today, Ticketmaster announced that the general on-sale for tickets has been canceled due to extraordinary demand and insufficient remaining ticket inventory. Okay, so to help us understand what is going on, we're joined now by NPR's Andrew Limbong. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Elsa. All right. So we're now seeing members of Congress this week weighing in on this Uh whole Ticketmaster meltdown. I don't know if they're Swifties, too. But let's just back up here. What exactly happened this week? Okay, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if you're a Swiftie or not, but well, a little uh, this bit. tour. I blast okay. music well, you after know, breakups. The, yes, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this tour is like a huge deal, right? She hasn't toured since 2018 because of COVID. And this tour in particular is being billed as like a career retrospective. So it's like mm-hmm. theoretically your best shot at hearing, I don't know, like an early hit like Tim McGraw or something on top of this stuff she's made since COVID. 
Now, the problem was that during the pre-sale, you know, like, your fans were ready to go, they got their special little codes, and we're all set to go. But just the sheer amount of people on the website caused it to, like, crash, slow down, and kick people out of line. Okay, so what is Ticketmaster saying about all of this? Like, how apologetic have they been? All right, so they haven't gotten back to me yet, but there's a statement on their website right now. It's a very dramatically titled "The Taylor Swift On Sale Explained," and uh, <laughs> you know it talks about yeah, it talks about how like there was just an unprecedented amount of fans on top of a uh, quote staggering number of bot attacks, which strained their website during the pre-sale. And you know with this cancellation of the general, I don't know, it's just like nobody knows anything. It's an incredibly frustrating and chaotic time for anyone trying to score a T Swift ticket. Well, I mean, it's not just Taylor Swift, right? Like, I feel like mm-hmm. I have been hearing a lot of criticism towards Ticketmaster lately. Yes, absolutely. Like, a few weeks ago, I was uh, one of the lucky few to cop Blink-182 tickets, you know, oh, at, a, at a reasonable price, at a reasonable okay. price, because, like, people were stressing out about how much they were costing. And I don't same if you remember with Bruce Springsteen fans. Mm-hmm. And that's because of um, Ticketmaster's relatively new dynamic pricing plan that sets aside a certain number of tickets where the prices can, like, fluctuate depending on demand. And, you know, like you said, the Swift stuff has politicians paying attention. Uh, New Jersey Representative Bill Pascrell actually said that he was trying to get into the pre-sale, too, but couldn't get through. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted that Ticketmaster is a monopoly uh, and its merger with Live Nation shouldn't have been approved in the first place. Right, Live Nation. She's talking about the entertainment company that bought Ticketmaster back in 2009. And Mm -hmm. I remember there were concerns about that merger back then. Oh, totally. Um, I talked to Dean Budnick. He's co-author of the book Ticket Masters, The Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped. And uh, here's what he had to say. If you look at it structurally, you have a company that, number one, has artist management. Number two, owns venues. Number three, has a ticketing company. And number four is the largest concert producer in the world. I I certainly can understand why some people would say, gee, That looks like a vertical monopoly. But uh, so under the Obama administration, it cleared all the regulatory hoops and even withstood some scrutiny in 2019. But, you know, there are politicians now asking the Biden administration to give this a closer look. So you may be too young to remember this, Andrew, but back in the 90s when I was in high school, I remember when Pearl Jam tried to take on Ticketmaster. They tried to book only venues that did not use Ticketmaster. I mean, Mm -hmm. couldn't Taylor Swift try to do something like that? Yeah, I mean, you you just got to think about realistically how many places can withstand a Taylor Swift concert. And, you know, chances are they use Ticketmaster too. That is NPR's Andrew Limbong. Thank you so much. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the collapse of FTX, one of the most prominent platforms of crypto exchange. The annual Leonid, Leonid meteor shower reaches its peak tonight when up to 15 meteors per hour are predicted to whiz by. Best time to look is likely tonight. Second best is tomorrow before dawn, although the crescent moon might dim the view. This is WBUR, 43 degrees now at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. And the Harvard Art Museums with Dare to Know, a new exhibition exploring the compelling role of prints during the Enlightenment. Free on Sundays, HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. When you give a modest monthly gift to WBUR, 
You're giving a very big gift to our entire community. You're giving everyone the journalism that is the oxygen of democracy. And when you support WBUR today, you'll get a little something as our thanks. A year of The New Yorker in your mailbox and on your digital device. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she won't seek re-election as leader of the Democrats in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Pelosi says she will remain in Congress. Her successor as the Democratic leader has yet to be determined officially. The Republicans will hold the majority in the next Congress. The Customs and Border Protection Agency says one of its agents has been killed in a gun battle at sea with suspected drug smugglers. The agency says three agents were patrolling off Puerto Rico when they encountered a suspect smuggling vessel and gunfire was exchanged. The other two agents were wounded. More than a 1,000 Starbucks employees are on strike, demanding good-faith bargaining for union contracts and better staffing. NPR's Danielle Kay reports the walkout coincides with one of the busiest days of the year for the coffeehouse chain. It's Red Cup Day at Starbucks when the coffee chain gives out limited edition holiday cups. And workers at more than 100 stores across the country are walking off the job on this typically profitable day. They're calling on the company to improve staffing and to hammer out contracts with unionized stores. 264 Starbucks stores have voted to unionize in the past year. Victoria Tambellini is an organizer with the Starbucks Workers United Union. She says understaffing is a key issue. Nobody wants to work in such a stressful work environment, especially when the company has been treating us badly and refusing to bargain. Starbucks has disputed the union's allegations of bad faith bargaining. Danielle Kay, NPR News. There's a state of emergency in New York as a powerful winter storm hits the state. The National Weather Service says up to four feet of snow could fall on the region around Buffalo. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost about seven points today to end at 33,546. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Public School Department must address systemic issues with how to identify certain children with disabilities. That's according to a new report that finds more black and Latino males, as well as English learners, are referred to special education. That often means they're learning in separate classrooms. WBUR's Savon Lee has more. The analysis was conducted by a group known as the Council of the Great City Schools. Its executive director, Ray Hart, says Boston has not modified its way of identifying special education students for decades. Nearly a third of those students are placed in entirely separate classrooms. And I can tell you that even in large urban school districts across the country, that 29% stands out significantly among your peers. Special education is just one area Boston's school district must reform per an agreement reached with state education officials to avert a takeover of the school system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Suvan Lee. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants answers from the founder of FTX, the billion-dollar cryptocurrency firm that filed for bankruptcy. Warren is requesting information from Sam Bankman-Fried about what she says is the misuse of billions of dollars of customers' funds. 
The Massachusetts senator says the company's massive losses raise questions about Bankman-Fried's behavior and reinforces her claims that crypto industry defrauds regular investors. Boston-based labor attorney Shannon Liz Reardon has filed two more lawsuits this week against Twitter. She's filed three suits in total since Elon Musk purchased the company. One of the new legal complaints accuses Twitter of firing many of its contractors without notice or without paying them the money that they were owed. The other accuses Twitter of discriminating against workers with disabilities by requiring employees to return to the office. The company has not commented on the new suits. And a suspect is in custody and being charged with the rape of a woman in Attleboro in 1994. The Bristol County DA says DNA evidence gathered from a previously untested rape kit led to the arrest of Eduardo Mendez in New York City earlier this week. A court date hasn't been set. The kit was one of the thousands in the state that was never tested by the state lab. The legislature passed a bill last year to address the backlog of untested rape kits and require district attorneys to notify survivors. It's 535. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, presenting The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, tonight and tomorrow at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. In sports tonight at the Gardens, the Bruins against the Philadelphia Flyers at 7 o'clock. This is the middle game of a three-game homestand for the Bruins. Tonight during warm-ups, the Bees will wear special edition military jerseys as part of their military appreciation night. The Boston Bruins Foundation will auction off the jerseys after warm-ups finish up. In the forecast, cold tonight, dipping to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mainly sunny, windy again. Temperatures in the mid-40s. 43 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. A day after the midterm election results made it clear Republicans will control the House. Come January, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi revealed her own political plans. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Pelosi, of course, has made history. She broke the so-called marble ceiling when she was elected the first female speaker in 2007. She returned for a second stand as speaker after her party regained control of the chamber in 2019. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. And Deirdre, it's such a seismic shift coming on Capitol Hill. Tell us more about what Pelosi said today. Definitely seismic. Pelosi's been in the leadership in the House for two decades. So this is really a sea change for Democrats and a passing of the torch for her. Democrats crowded onto the House floor earlier today to listen to Pelosi reveal her plans, which she kept very, very close to the vest. She called the Capitol the temple of democracy. She also took note of the change in the House during the arc of her own 35-year career for women. When I came to the Congress in 1987, there were 12 Democratic women. Now they're over 90, and we want more. 
Pelosi also talked about working with three presidents. She name-checked Bush, Obama, and Biden, but she left out the fourth, Trump. She gave a warning that democracy is majestic but fragile, and she said the results of the election show voters rejected violence and insurrection. Pelosi also said she's going to continue to represent her San Francisco district in the House. So she's staying in Congress, just stepping away from this leadership role. But what was the reaction from her party, from House Democrats? You know, many expected Pelosi to step down after the midterms. When she was reelected as speaker in 2018, she made a pledge to her caucus to limit herself to four years. But there was a period after the better than expected results for Democrats in this year's midterms that she might stay. She's credited with fundraising for her party and steering the Biden agenda through the House with a very tight majority. Some Democrats I talked to today were emotional about the news, like Pennsylvania Democrat Madeline Dean, who got choked up. I was crying sad tears and happy tears. Uh, Sad that this season is ending, as she called it, uh, and happy that I have had the privilege of working with her. I'm going to cry again. Michigan Democrat Debbie Dingell talked about Pelosi's reputation as a political force. Look, I've been on both sides of Nancy Pelosi. It's much more pleasant when you're on the good side of her. But she's tough, she listens, she delivers. Many Democrats use the same phrase over and over, historical figure. Hmm. So let's talk about the next chapter in the history of all this, because Pelosi talked about a new generation, the next generation coming. Who are they? Right. Well, Pelosi wasn't the only Democratic leader to say they're stepping down from their leadership post. Her number two Maryland Democrat Steny Hoyer and number three South Carolina Democrat Jim Clyburn also said they're going to remain in Congress but work to help the new generation. We expect Hakeem Jeffries, he's a Democrat from New York, to be the front runner to serve as House Minority Leader. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark and California Congressman Pete Aguilar are running for top posts. I talked to another Democrat, Jamie Raskin, about the next generation and what they face in a Republican-controlled House. We are battle-hardened by what we've been through with Donald Trump. And so there are some very tough and resilient junior leaders here. And... um, we'll all get a chance to uh, be part of the new team. One of the voices today from Capitol Hill, thank you to NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. More than a million people may have lost their money in the spectacular collapse of the cryptocurrency trading company FTX. NPR's Chris Arnold spoke to some of them as they try to figure out what happened and what to do next. FTX spent big money to make trading crypto popular and to gain people's trust. The company got a stadium named after it, had scores of TV commercials with superstars like Tom Brady and Steph Curry. I'm not an expert and I don't need to be. With FTX, I have everything I need to buy, sell and trade crypto safely. Trade crypto safely? Uh, Apparently not. After panic spread that the company was on shaky ground, there was basically a run on the bank with people scrambling to try to withdraw their holdings. FTX froze accounts, quickly filed for bankruptcy, and now many customers could lose some or all of their money. So much for trading crypto safely. I was devastated, really. That's a huge chunk of money for me. Terry Smith is an architect in the Seattle area who says she may have lost about $30,000 in the FTX implosion. It feels like someone's stealing your money. I mean, it, it feels like... Yeah, it feels like theft. Investing in crypto is inherently risky, but people didn't lose money this time because Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency plunged in value. It was that the FTX trading platform itself imploded, 
Sort of like if you were investing in stocks using, say, E-Trade or Schwab or Fidelity, and the company said, oops, sorry, we're declaring bankruptcy and you can't withdraw your money. And for Jake Thacker in Portland, Oregon, it's a lot of money. Roughly $70,000 in FTX when it, when it all came crashing down. Thacker is 40 years old and works in the tech industry. He's traded crypto for a couple of years, and he'd managed to make about $200,000 using trading bots and advice from investing groups. Then last week, he heard the news that FTX was melting down. He tried logging into his account. Went in, looked at some of where my account balances were. Didn't seem to be right. Everything was frozen. Uh, there was all kinds of air issues. I was definitely in freakout mode. He tried messaging and calling FTX, couldn't find out much of anything. And I got my lawyer involved and he was kind of like, I don't, I don't really know, Jake. I don't, don't know what's going to happen here. So what is likely to happen next for all of these investors? It ain't looking good. Charlie Gerstein is an attorney who's filed class action cases against other cryptocurrency companies. The bankruptcy filing state that FTX could owe money to upwards of a million people. And he says the basic facts are pretty grim. FTX told investors it would keep their assets safe. So if it can't give people their money back, he says it probably broke the law by doing something else with it. The company is short $8 billion, and there's only two conceivable categories of explanation for what happened to that $8 billion. The first is they traded it in speculative investments and lost it. In other words, it's gone. Or they stole it. There's also this. Hackers reportedly may have stolen several hundred million dollars of customers' money as well while all this was going on. Moving forward, the bankruptcy court will eventually try to sort out how much money is left and how it gets divvied up among all of these people. FTX said in a statement, quote, we are going to conduct this effort with diligence, thoroughness and transparency. Meanwhile, the sudden collapse of FTX is having some contagion effects as people lose faith in other crypto trading platforms. Jake Thacker says the question basically is if FTX collapsed, who's to say another one won't too? I think that's where that fear is creeping into the backs of people's minds right now. It's, I could be the best trader. I could get the best returns. Do I trust the system that will allow me to do it? I think is that's what's rattling through people's brains right now. So Thacker says he's pulling some of his money off of other platforms as well. Chris Arnold, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. The first time filmmaker Luca Guadagnino and actor Timothy Chalamet worked together, it was on the romantic drama Call Me By Your Name, based on a novel set in the 1980s. Their new film, Bones and All, is also based on a novel set in the 80s. It also depicts a romance, but critic Bob Mondello says there is a difference. This one has a lot of blood. As played by Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet, Marin and Lee are a gorgeous couple. Sitting in an open field somewhere in the Midwest, they are, though they're on the run, the very picture of romance. Holding hands, sharing secrets, one secret in particular. They're young, they're in love, they eat people. You don't think I'm a bad person? All I think is that I love you. 
Camille DeAngelis set her novel near the end of the Reagan era, when cannibalism could serve as an apt metaphor for American excess. Director Luca Guadagnino doesn't lean on politics as much as on poetry, on youth. These kids are outsiders, still finding themselves. It would be wrong to call them innocent, but what they're hungriest for is connection. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. In the film's opening scenes, the director shows how the world sees them. Marin, a shy teen in a new school, whose dad is so insistent that she stay home nights, he actually locks her door when they finish dinner. But an invite to a new classmate's slumber party? She slips out a window and arrives just as quiet time is descending and fingernail polishes are being displayed. So you can't spend the night? Not all night. Should be back by six to be safe. I'll just head out when you guys want to sleep. The host's ring finger is being painted a new shade. Try that. It's called copper fever. She looks and frowns. It's too orange. But Marin seems to find it appealing. She leans forward, takes the girl's finger gently in her mouth, and bites it off. <laughs> now it's clear why Dad locked her door, why this was a new school. You didn't. In the car in three minutes. Whatever you can take in three minutes. Dad disappears once they're a couple of states away, leaving cash and a cassette saying why he can't stay, at which point Marin's a bit lost, but he also left her birth certificate, so she sets off to find the mother she never knew. It's on that trip that she discovers there are others like her. I came looking for you. I smelled you. Sully's recognized a kindred spirit. I thought you might be hungry. He wants to take her under his wing, show her how to harvest folks who are about to die. Who lives here? Is there someone dead up there? So she needn't kill. Show her how to survive. I got rules. Never, never, ever ate an eater. But she doesn't trust him. And when she encounters Lee a bit later in a supermarket altercation with a bully. Hey, don't talk to her like that. You're out of control, buddy. Are you with the store or something? No, I'm not at the store, but I'm going to escort you out of it. They find themselves on the same team, as it were. Oh, we're going outside. You enjoy hassling people, man? He won't for long, and Lee and Marin will then bond as young people do over shared experiences, first times. What was it like? A rush. You could feel every blood vessel like spider webbing through me. I felt like some kind of weird new superhero. What about afterward? What'd you feel about it? What'd you think? I don't remember after. For all the blood and cannibalism that it's hard to call tasteful exactly, Bones and All turns out to be dreamily resonant as a portrait of teenagers, isolated, marginalized, filled with urges of which they're sometimes ashamed, finding first love in a world where their appetites make sense to no one but themselves. I'm Bob Mandela. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we'll hear from two victors in state midterm elections. Both are transgender lawmakers, one from New Hampshire, the other from Montana. That's just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. Our gusty winds from today should stick around tonight. Temperatures fall to just below freezing tonight. 
Tomorrow should be a little bit sunnier than today and just about as chilly in the mid-40s again. The weekend is looking bright and brisk. Sunshine Saturday still breezy, about 44 degrees. Then for Sunday, sun's back, so are the winds shouldn't break out of the 30s. Start your day tomorrow with 90.9 WBUR and Barbara. Barbara Streisand has never been in a nightclub or she hadn't been until she sang in one. Tomorrow we'll preview her new album that's a recording of one of her famed nightclub performances and we'll dig into the significance of two biographies of late Senator Ted Kennedy. Join us tomorrow morning at 90.9 WBUR. Morning edition starts at 5 a.m. WBUR supporters include Joy Street Artists Association. Be inspired by the work of over 65 artists at Brick Bottom and Joy Street Open Studios this Saturday and Sunday. Brickbottom.org slash events. Bengavir's ride to the cusp of government from a position of obscurity and the fringes of Israeli society in some way tracks a wider movement within Israeli society towards the right that we've seen over the last three decades. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. For the first time in U.S. history, this election season, at least one LGBTQ candidate has run for office in every state and Washington, D.C. And that has led to a number of other firsts, including the first out trans man ever elected to a state legislature, James Rosener of New Hampshire, and the election victory of Zoe Zephyr, the first out trans lawmaker elected to office in Montana. All of this at a time when legislation targeting the rights of LGBTQ people was being drafted and passed all around the country. Here today are James Rosner and Zoe Zephyr. Welcome and congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Excited to be here. Hello, thank you so much. So I want to first just start by asking you, what inspired both of you to run for office this election cycle? Like, why now in particular? This is Zoe Zephyr. In 2021 in Montana, there were several uh, anti-LGBTQ bills uh, brought forward. And I had been working on policy at the city level and went to testify at the legislature, specifically on a bill banning trans women and uh, trans kids from playing sports. I then went and testified to the governor's office alongside two trans kids who were begging to just be allowed to play sports with their friends. And then I watched several bills pass through the Montana legislature by one vote. And I thought to myself, I could change that heart. I know representation can make that difference. And so I met with my legislator at the time and asked him, what do I need to do? And he gave me a list and off I went. So Zoe, your path into politics, it started in activism. What about you, James? Um, very much same here. Uh, I have been part of the LGBT community uh, and advocacy for a while. Uh, I have volunteered for going on eight years now at the local clinic that not only provides um, like gender affirming services and LGBT health care, but also is an abortion clinic as well. Um, and they're kind of a second family to me at this point. I've been seeing them for so long. Not just do I care about these issues, but then it becomes personal a little bit when, um, you know, laws are threatening to lock up my friends for providing very necessary um, 
healthcare and health services to my community. I, it just feels a little absurd and surreal. Understanding the weight that local politics has, especially for communities like mine, um, I really felt it was important to have some visibility of our own, let alone having somebody who's willing to fight the good fight regardless of identity. Well, let me ask you, because, you know, right-wing politicians and even some in the mainstream GOP have been targeting trans people, like the newly reelected governor in Iowa, Kim Reynolds. She ran a campaign ad this cycle saying that Iowans know the difference between boys from girls. What do you make of the fact that this kind of rhetoric has been so prevalent from Republican politicians, people who will very likely become some of your colleagues? The first thing I think of is the direct impact it has on trans people and those who love them. When Montana passed its anti-trans legislation, I had friends leave the state. I had friends end their lives. And that is the immediate impact of these types of bills. Beyond that, to me, the it is a short-term strategy on the right to drum up fear to find a target that they think is vulnerable, that they can rally their base around. What I think the right will find is that when you take away the R and the D and you bring it down to our local communities, trans people have the support of those around them. And in Montana, when the Department of Public Health and Human Services proposed a new rule about banning updating your birth certificate if you're trans. They held a public hearing and one person came out to support that anti-trans piece of legislation and 100 came out in opposition to it. And that's across Montana. And if it's true here, I know it's true across the country as well. People are very willing to show up and defend the rights of their neighbors. And that's been a lot of what my experience in this campaign has been, is seeing in real time what I already believed was in people kind of organize uh, for a better world. Well, despite there being a fair amount of legislation out there that you find deeply hurtful, deeply disturbing, there has been a record number of LGBTQ candidates running for office during these midterms. And I just want to know, what does that signal to both of you? I feel like to see so many LGBT people being inspired to run just proves to me that all of this homophobic and transphobic and bigoted rhetoric that's been flowing in our system um, for, you know, a little bit now we are taking our power back in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to see a really amazing turning point in the near future here. The first thing it signals is that we have people in our community who are willing to stand up and put themselves out there. That would have been hard to imagine um, decades ago that this many people would stand up and want to be visible and present. And beyond that, with the record number of people winning, it shows that our communities don't just passively support us. My friends and neighbors in my district looked at me and said, that's the person we want representing us. And to, I know that that's true for all of the candidates across the country who won their elections. So what will be your first priorities in office? 
New Hampshire recently um, has experienced its first um, abortion ban. It's a 24-week ban with no exceptions for rape or incest. One of my, my first priorities moving into this next session is going to be to work to enshrine the right to abortion and reproductive services into our state because we are the only state in New England that does not have those protections in place. The state of Montana is currently sitting on a $2 billion surplus, and both Democrats and Republicans have been putting forward plans for what to do with that. Top priorities in that and top priorities in my community and across the state are affordable housing and making sure that we have enough inventory for Montana's population. Additionally, um, there's big discussions around mental health in the state of Montana. My job will be to help with that. And also when it comes to human rights, make sure that we're having conversations around the way in which these anti-LGBTQ attacks, the way in which attacks on abortion, the direct impacts they have on the mental health crisis we're trying to solve. State legislators-elect Zoe Zephyr of Montana and James Rosener of New Hampshire, thank you and congratulations to both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. We've got some nice weather ahead if you don't mind keeping your hat on. It may be tough, though. Strong winds overnight tonight. Cold ones, too, down around 31 degrees. Tomorrow and Saturday, mostly sunny, only in the mid-40s. For Sunday, sunny, windy, colder, about 39 degrees tops. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Nancy Pelosi era has come to an end in Washington, D.C. Pelosi has led Democrats for two decades. Today, the House Speaker said she'll step down in January from her top spot in the party. The move clears the way for a new generation of lawmakers to climb the ranks of leadership. It's Thursday, November 17th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story ahead. Also, world leaders at the U.N. Climate Conference retreated to a new item on the menu this week. Cultivated meat grown in a lab, not in an animal. This is really delicious. Tastes like chicken. It is chicken. 
Voltura cultivated meat startup in San Francisco, Washington, and El Paso, Texas react as the Biden administration prepares for the end to the pandemic border restrictions under Title 42. A federal judge declared the restrictions unlawful. It's 601. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House is reacting to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's announcement that she is stepping down from her leadership position. In a statement, President Biden called Pelosi the most consequential House Speaker in our history. NPR's Deepa Shivram has more. Biden called Pelosi a, quote, fierce defender of democracy and said history will remember her efforts during the January 6th insurrection to protect the Capitol. He also said her work in Congress has helped advance human rights. Pelosi and Biden's relationship goes back to their early days in Congress when Pelosi was first elected to the House and Biden a senator from Delaware. Her announcement comes as Republicans have won enough seats to take control of the House. And in the next term, GOP leaders are already planning investigations into the Biden family, including into the president's son, Hunter Biden. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. A Customs and Border Protection agent was killed today during a gun battle with suspected drug smugglers at sea. NPR's Joel Rose reports two other agents were wounded in the incident off the coast of Puerto Rico. CBP says three marine interdiction agents were on patrol 12 miles off the coast of Puerto Rico when they encountered a suspected smuggling vessel. The three agents sustained gunshot injuries and one of the agents later died. CBP spokesman Jeffrey Quinones told reporters in Puerto Rico. Quinones said one of the two suspected smugglers also died in the exchange of gunfire. The area between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic is a major drug smuggling corridor. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said in testimony before a Senate committee that one CBP agent was killed and several others were gravely wounded, adding, quote, their bravery and selfless service should be recognized. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. The Departments of Justice and Education released new guidance today for how to handle borrowers who want to shed their federal student loans through bankruptcy. Here's NPR's Corey Turner. The bar is high for student borrowers hoping for a clean slate, higher than it is for discharging, say, credit card debt. Congress saw to that by requiring that student borrowers prove they will suffer undue hardship if their debts are not discharged. In practice, that's made it really hard for struggling student borrowers to successfully navigate bankruptcy. This new guidance, though, creates what the Justice Department calls a better, fairer, more transparent process, one that includes having borrowers fill out a new attestation form that DOJ and the Education Department will review. The DOJ says this should make it easier for its attorneys to identify cases where discharge is appropriate. Corey Turner. NPR News. Employees at a number of U.S. Starbucks stores walked off the job today. Today is Starbucks' annual Red Cup Day, when the company hands out free reusable cups for customers. Workers are seeking better pay and more consistent hours. The Dow is down seven points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Outgoing U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is being praised by members of the all-Democratic Massachusetts congressional delegation, and that includes one of the Democrats who tried to oust her as Speaker twice. Congressman Seth Moulton says Pelosi served remarkably and passed important legislation. He calls her a truly historic leader. To get there, she smashed through enormous glass ceilings, some of the toughest in America. And that's an example that she's set for women literally all over the globe. 
uh, an example that I'll be proud to share with my daughters as they grow up. Moulton says Pelosi is making good on her agreement with Democrats who opposed her several years ago to step down and make room for a new generation of leaders. Moulton says he will not seek a leadership position himself. Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern calls Pelosi a championship for, a champion for children and an unsurpassed voice for human rights. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says Pelosi fights hard for workers and is a mentor to many. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark is being mentioned as a possible candidate for a higher leadership position among House Democrats in the next Congress. Assistant House Speaker Clark calls Pelosi a friend and mentor. Her office has not yet said if she intends to seek an elevated role. Many T-riders have been looking forward to the opening of a new Green Line station in Somerville and in Medford later this month, but they'll have to wait a couple of weeks longer. WBUR Simone Rios reports the Green Line extension has been delayed yet again. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says the new stations are now set to open December 12th. It's the latest in a string of delays, but now Poftech says the additional work is done and they're planning for the opening event. There's a uh, universe of uh, enthusiasts for this type of thing, so I look forward to seeing you all at uh, approximately 4.45 a.m. for the grand opening. The expansion will add five new stations to the northern end of the Green Line, extending all the way to Tufts University in Medford. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The widow of a Boston University professor who died at the JFK UMass Red Line station is suing the MBTA and the State Department of Transportation for wrongful death. David Jones fell to his death while he climbed a decrepit and rusted staircase in September last year. The lawsuit alleges the state allowed the staircase to fall into disrepair, making it a danger to the public. The suit accuses the state of not taking adequate measures to protect the public from accessing the stairs. The MBTA and the Department of Transportation say they do not comment on pending litigation. In the forecast, freezing out there overnight tonight, down around 31 degrees, still windy too. Tomorrow, sunny skies, a chilly breeze again, temperatures in the mid-40s for Saturday and Sunday, sunshine again in the mid-40s Saturday, only about 39 degrees on Sunday. 43 degrees now in Boston at 607. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, the suspense is over on two things we've been watching for after this year's midterm elections. Republicans have won narrow control of the House. And across the aisle, the end of an era has come for Democratic leadership. My colleagues, I stand before you as Speaker of the House... Today on the House floor, Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she will step down as party leader after two decades. With great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Pelosi became the first woman to serve as Speaker of the House and has been one of the most powerful lawmakers to ever hold that position. Susan Page is Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, and she has long covered Pelosi's career. She's here to talk about the announcement and what might come next. Welcome. Yes, hi. Great to be with you. So, Susan, you wrote about Pelosi's career in the book, Madam Speaker. Can you just remind us briefly, like like the 30-second version, what was Pelosi's path to Democratic leadership? 
Well, she was a political organizer in California and a fundraiser. She ran in a special election in 1987 and came to Washington thinking she'd stay for about 10 years. But she propelled, she was propelled really into the Democratic leadership and has for the past 20 years been in that role. So that is a really remarkable history and, and somebody who first made her name as the first woman in the job, but then kept her name, made more history for what she managed to achieve in the job. Right. Homemaker to House Speaker, as she put it. Well, Pelosi, of course, has been a polarizing figure. She's been a frequent target of Republicans. She's had plenty of friction with members in her own caucus. But we're hearing people now say that she's going to be remembered as one of the most effective speakers in modern history. First, do you agree with that assessment? And what are the top moments in her career that stand out to you? You know, you think about it. In 2008, during the financial meltdown, she pushed through a bank bailout that economists say kept us from a from another depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, she helped brought Barack Obama. She was crucial in, in Barack Obama's success in passing the Affordable Care Act. That She says that's her biggest achievement. And then, of course... During the Trump era, she became the face of the Democratic opposition to the most disruptive president in our history and cleared the way, okayed the path that led to two impeachments of him. Well, this announcement that she's stepping down as House Democratic leader, it it came just a few weeks after her husband, Paul Pelosi, was brutally attacked in their San Francisco home. How much do you think that particular incident played into her decision to step down now? Do you think it was critical? It's interesting. She sat down with a few reporters after she made her announcement, Mm -hmm. and she told us that the attack on her husband made her more open to the idea of staying in Congress, Mm -hmm. even while stepping back from the leadership. She said she didn't want to give them the satisfaction of seeing her leave town. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so maybe it played some role, but she uh, some role in keeping her in Congress. That's that's right. It didn't. uh, It's not the reason she stepped down. She had promised to do that four years ago, although there have been a lot of speculation lately about whether she'd deliver on that promise. Uh, But it actually made her more likely to continue to represent her California district here in Washington. Very interesting. Well, in her speech today, Pelosi talked about the next generation willing to shoulder the responsibility of leading House Democrats. What can you tell us about who is planning to run for party leadership now in the House? Well, it's increasingly likely that Hakeem Jeffries, the congressman from Brooklyn, will succeed Nancy Pelosi as the leader of House Democrats. He's been in the leadership. He'll be another groundbreaking figure in the job. As she was, he will be the first person of color to lead one of the major parties in either House of Congress. Right. And two other individuals, right, are emerging among the Democrats. That's right. Kathleen Clark from Massachusetts as number two. And Congressman Aguilar from California would be number three in the new House leadership. Big generational change. The three people they're replacing are all in their 80s. Right. Because there was some agitation among the ranks that leadership was aging and it was time for there to be younger blood in in the leadership post, right, among the Democrats. Pelosi told us that her phone was blowing up with members of Congress, Democrats saying, you should stay and lead us. We need you. But the fact is, I think there is a sense with Democrats here that it is time to move to a next generation of leadership, really the right time for her to move on. So what do you think, Susan? What do you think Pelosi's legacy will mean for both the party and for her successor in the House? Well, she's, you know, she's demonstrated how effective you can be even when you're a pretty narrow majority. And just in the past two years, she's had a pretty narrow majority and managed to get some big legislation through. She's also 
demonstrated that women can be in the top positions in government. She's the most, for a long time until uh, Kamala Harris was elected, she was the highest ranking woman in American history. That is Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Susan. Hey, thank you. The Food and Drug Administration has taken a first step towards allowing, for the first time ever, a new kind of meat to be sold in the U.S. It is called cultivated meat, and it is grown, grown directly from animal cells without slaughtering animals. People gathering at the U.N. Climate Conference in Egypt this week are getting a taste of this new product, which is being touted as a climate-friendly alternative. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. When it comes to climate change solutions, there's a lot of focus on the food system. That's because about one-third of all greenhouse gas emissions come from food production, many directly from meat. I'm Joshua March, uh, co-founder and CEO here at Sci-Fi Foods. Sci-Fi Foods is one of more than 50 startups staking a future in cultivated meat. March is developing an alternative to the traditional burger because he says beef has a big environmental footprint. It's responsible for a huge amount uh, of methane emissions, which is one of the most potent greenhouse gases. Deforestation of the rainforest. Trees are cut down to create pasture to graze cattle. Land is needed to grow grain to feed the animals. And climate scientists warn that it's nearly impossible to meet climate goals without changing agriculture. March says telling people to eat less meat won't work. Global demand for animal protein is on the rise, and burgers are one of Americans' favorite foods. But he thinks there may be a growing appetite for an alternative. If you go to most people and say, wouldn't it be amazing if we could produce real meat, but do it without the need to kill an animal and without the need to cut down the rainforest and all the other stuff that comes with it? And most people will say, like, yeah, that would be amazing. And that's what we're doing. That's what they aim to do. Cultivated meat is not yet approved by the Food and Drug Administration, but over the last few years, companies have forged ahead. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars for research and development. One of the first startups in the space, called Good Meat, is much further along. Here's Good Meat's Andrew Noyes. We're the only company in the world that has regulatory approval to sell anywhere in the world, and that is in Singapore. They made headlines a couple of years ago when they began to sell cultivated chicken in a restaurant in Singapore. And Good Meat is serving up its chicken at the climate conference this week in Egypt, making a case it could be good for the environment. One of the first questions people ask before trying it is exactly how do you grow meat? We took a tour of their production facility near San Francisco. Welcome to Good Meat's pilot plant building. We've been finishing up the construction and commissioning. Good Meats Peter Zerpak walks us into a space that looks like a brewery. It's filled with big, shiny stainless steel tanks. The one on the right is 3,500 liters. It stretches from floor to ceiling. This is where the process starts. They've extracted a bunch of cells from chickens. Now they need to feed these cells, a mix of proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. Same things the cells would get if they were in an animal's body. You can also add some nutrients as they're slowly growing, just like all of us. If you need a snack in the middle of the day, sometimes the cells may need a snack as well. The feed is mixed into a liquid and piped into the tanks where the cells will grow. And they're looked after closely. You're watching that they're just the right temperature. They don't have a fever. You're watching that they're the right pH. Then the cells start to proliferate and grow into meat. 
good meat scientist Vitor Espirosanto says what's happening here is akin to making sourdough bread from a starter full of yeast. So when you think about yeast fermentation, you have a cell that essentially proliferates in a, in a culture media, and that by dividing, it's producing the product we, we want. He says the difference here, of course, is the cells are animal cells. The processes are the same. We feed them with nutrients, and they will multiply until we tell them to stop. The meat grows inside the tanks on trays. After it comes out, it's molded into shapes such as nuggets or filet. After three to four weeks, they're ready for the grill. Good Meat's in-house chef Chris Jones prepared a grilled chicken dish in a clay pot with mushrooms. Just doing a really umami-style um, mushroom glaze and actually just leaving the chicken basically naked. He adds some asparagus, brown rice, and quinoa. Well, it definitely looks beautiful. And he serves it up. This is really delicious. Tastes like chicken. It is chicken. It's actually about 75% cultivated chicken. The other 25% is plant-based ingredients. This blended approach may be the fastest way to get products to market. Given scaling up commercial production could be a challenge. Good Meats' Andrew Noyes says the goal is to sell its products in the U.S. We are working actively with the FDA and USDA on an efficient pathway to market so we can sell our chicken product to consumers here. And yesterday, another cultivated meat company cleared a key regulatory hurdle. The Food and Drug Administration gave Upside Foods a safety nod after reviewing more than 100 pages of documentation showing that their cultivated meat is safe to eat. It's an important first step towards selling their products in the U.S. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a cloud of economic gloom settles over Britain. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. Stocks dipped a bit today. The Dow lost a tiny fraction, about eight points, to close at 33,546. S&P gave up 0.31 percent to end the day at 39.47. The Nasdaq lost 0.35 percent to finish at 11,145. The commercial real estate sector in the Boston area is slowing down. Investors bought 27 percent fewer commercial properties in Metro Boston between July and October compared to the same period last year. That's according to new data from the investment research firm MSCI. It's only the second time commercial real estate purchases have fallen year over year since the early days of the pandemic. Business news starts in just about 10 minutes. It's 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to wbur.org. 
A new sobering review of Boston Public Schools' special education programs reveals a disproportionate number of black and Latino boys and English language learners are referred to special ed. See WBUR's report now at WBUR.org. The annual Leonid meteor shower reaches its peak tonight when up to 15 meteors per hour are predicted to whiz by. Best time to look is likely tonight. Second best is tomorrow before dawn, although the crescent moon may dim the view. Should be dry for meteor gazing tonight and cold just below freezing. Tomorrow's sunny skies, highs in the mid-40s for the weekend should be bright and brisk. 43 degrees still in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, presenting The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, tonight and tomorrow at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Biden administration has just over one month to prepare for possible changes at the southern border, and those changes could be major. A federal judge this week threw out the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42, and that comes just as migrant apprehensions are already at record levels. I want to bring in two guests now to help us understand what this all means, both at the border and beyond. We've got Angela Kocheriga with member station KTEP in El Paso, Texas, and NPR's Joel Rose reporting from Washington. Hey to both of you. Hey, Elsa. Hi, Elsa. So, Joel, I want to start with you. Can you just remind us what is Title 42 and how much have immigration authorities relied on it over the course of the pandemic? A lot. I mean, immigration authorities have used these pandemic border restrictions called Title 42 more than two million times to quickly expel migrants without giving them a chance to first seek asylum in the U.S. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. ruled this week that Title 42 is unlawful because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention should have considered less drastic alternatives to protect the country from COVID-19 and also ignored the possible harms of expelling these migrants to Mexico. But the judge agreed to stay that ruling for five weeks with great reluctance, he wrote in all caps, (laughs) to give the Biden administration more time to prepare for an orderly transition. Okay. Well, Angela, you've been in Juarez this week, just across the border from El Paso. What was the reaction there when they all found out this news? Well, Elsa, I was at a migrant camp located right on the banks of the Rio Grande, and everyone there was aware that Title 42 is ending soon. The news had traveled very fast, and they were cautiously optimistic and very relieved. Now, the only decision left for most was when to turn themselves into Border Patrol agents at a mobile processing center just across the river. So it's all been very orderly. And I talked with Juan Sanchez, who had been living at this camp for a month, and he was very ready to leave. My friends are telling me that we can cross, maybe we have a chance. I hope so. We are professionals. We are working people. So about a thousand people have been camped there for about a month. There are no portable bathrooms. And May Castillo, someone else I met there, she's a mother of three. She's been sleeping in a donated tent with her husband and her children. She says the tents do not provide shelter from the tremendous cold, and the temperatures have been dipping below freezing. So no one wants to be there longer than they have to. Border Patrol is telling people not to cross, that they'll be turned back because Title 42 has not ended yet. But the migrants say so far they're not seeing people from the camp being sent back, and that camp is emptying out as more and more people cross. I imagine so. Well, meanwhile, Joel... You've been following the reaction in Washington. What are lawmakers saying about this ruling so far? 
there's concern about even greater numbers of migrants trying to cross the border illegally if and, you know, when Title 42 ends. And we heard that today from senators on both sides of the aisle at a hearing with the Secretary of Homeland Security, including Republican James Lankford of Oklahoma and Democrat Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. A lot of people counting on these numbers coming down, and they're not. They're going up with the end of Title 42 uh, coming in 35 days. We expect it's going to accelerate even higher. With the sudden announcement that Title 42 will be terminated in December, I'm extremely worried that DHS is not ready and that border communities and migrants will suffer the costs for this lack of preparation. You know, we heard these same concerns back in the spring when the Biden administration was preparing to end Title 42 voluntarily. In fact, Senators Sinema and Lankford introduced a bill back then that would have extended these border restrictions. Their bill didn't get very far, in part because a federal judge in Louisiana blocked the Biden administration from ending Title 42 then. But we could potentially see that bill or something like it resurrected now during the lame duck session. Well, going back to El Paso, Angela, how ready do you think the city government there and and all the organizations out there that help migrants, how ready will they be, you think, for more influx? Yeah, well, they've been through this before. Over the summer, large groups of Venezuelans were crossing the border and arriving in El Paso. So the city says it can open what they call a welcome center to help the migrants find find shelter, temporary shelter, that is, and make mm-hmm. travel arrangements. And they're dedicating 60 city workers to help nonprofit organizations because they're struggling to find enough volunteers. All of this is very expensive, so they want the federal government to quickly provide funding $3 million to start, and the city is owed $7 million for the, the spike in migration this summer. There are no plans to resume that busing migrants to New York uh, program, but some nonprofit organizations may help arrange travel by bus or plane to other destinations. Okay, so calls for more federal funding. Joel, what is the Biden administration saying about those calls and about preparations right now? Well, they say they'll be ready. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas appeared before a Senate committee today and said DHS has a plan that includes surging more resources to the border and also more enforcement under the immigration laws that were in place before Title 42. Enhancing the consequences for uh, unlawful entry, especially with respect to individuals who seek to evade law enforcement, including removal, detention, and criminal prosecution when warranted. Again, these are a lot of the same things Mayorkas said back in the spring. Any increase in detention or deportation is not going to sit well with immigrant advocates and many Democrats. It's also possible the Biden administration could still try to appeal the judge's ruling on Title 42 up to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals or beyond, um, just because the White House doesn't have a lot of other great options here. That is NPR's Joel Rose and Angela Kocherga with member station KTEP. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. You're welcome. Economic gloom has settled over the United Kingdom today as that country's finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, unveiled his long-awaited autumn budget. He warned of a tough road ahead. Willem Marks reports from London. This was never going to be an easy sell for Jeremy Hunt. The UK is currently in the grips of a fiscal storm exacerbated by the decisions of his predecessor, Kwasi Kwarteng, and the then Prime Minister, Liz Truss. A few weeks ago, Kwarteng announced the largest tax-cutting plans for 50 years. But they were not sufficiently costed, and after an awful reaction from the financial markets, Hunt has entirely reversed course. His proposals to Parliament today have turned the ruling Conservative Party's economic policy on its head and will leave the country with the highest tax burden since the Second World War. They include $65 billion in tax increases and spending cuts over the next five years, with severe long-term implications for Britain's schools, health system and elderly care. Mr Hunt acknowledged the country was in recession and that his new package would be a bitter pill for many to swallow. 
We are not alone in facing these problems, but today we respond to an international crisis with British values. We are honest about the challenges and we are fair in our solutions. While the government's largely blamed the economic headwinds on the pandemic and war in Ukraine, political opponents pointed out that the UK's problems are considerably worse than many of its international peers. Rachel Reeves, the finance minister from the main opposition Labour Party, said that the British people would be left with the consequences of conservative chaos. All the country got today was an invoice for the economic carnage that this government has created. Never again can the Conservatives be seen as the party of economic competence. New independent official forecasts suggest Britain's economy will shrink next year more than any other large European country. And amid spiralling double-digit inflation, UK living standards over the next two years will now fall the fastest in modern history. For NPR News, I'm Bill and Marks in London. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a Medix Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go.